The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 5 through 22. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which it is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, your wife, and your sons' wives with with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, band. Thank you, readers. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? We all right? We ready to rock and roll? Get after it? All right, welcome to Sacred City Church. Uh, We love people because they're made in God's image and he died for them. And we love God's word because it tells us about him and what he's done to save us. And we love Jesus. All right, Sacred City Church, we love Jesus. If this is... uh, if, this is, if you're new to, the, new to our church, maybe this is your first time, I want you to know that we're passionate about three things, and that's the gospel, that's community, and mission. Everything we do as a church files down to one of those three areas. And today, as we study uh, Genesis chapter 6, you're going to see how the gospel affects our behavior. Now, um, if you are new, we preach through books of the Bible. That means... Um, We don't come up with clever, catchy sermons. We just work our way all the way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, 
and um, we see what God's word has to say for us. We've been through the first five books now of Genesis. Now we're smack dab in the sixth chapter, and I am incredibly pumped to preach the gospel to you this morning because um, how many of you have ever heard of this guy named Noah? Right? Everybody has. Nearly every culture on the planet has heard of this guy named Noah. Even cultures that aren't... uh, you know, Jewish or Christian have some kind of flood narrative that flows down through their history because this is something that actually happened in history and it's known around the world. But one of the things I want us to see today is I want us to see how the gospel, somebody say gospel, affects our behavior. I think the majority of us get this backwards. So today's sermon in this section of Scripture is all about grace-driven effort. It's about grace-inspired obedience. Or another way to say it is it's a story about how the grace of God causes us, causes us to respond with good works for His glory. All right? This is where we're headed today. Now, I love this because I love preaching the gospel and I love preaching on how how the good news empowers us to obey God for his glory and for our good. All right. Now, listen, you're going to get I need to get this going right away. This is for our joy. Your obedience, your godliness, your holiness is for your joy. God says when we glorify him in obedience, when we glorify him and walk close to him, this is for our joy. So listen, if you're out there today and you have a joy problem. Maybe you're a negative Nancy, all right? Maybe you're a downer Doug. Sorry, Doug, it just rhymed and I just had to go with it, all right? Maybe that's you, okay? You have a joy problem. Listen to me right now. That is a gospel problem. That is not a problem with your circumstances. That is not a problem with everybody else in your life fails to worship you the way they should. Nobody makes enough about you. Nobody loves you good enough. Nobody, whatever, whatever, whatever. That is not the case. This is a gospel problem. Your obedience, your holiness, your walking near to God is for your joy. So that's where we're going today. So let's play. All right. We ready to do this? Ready, ready to get into it? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. There's a few Bibles on the back stair if you want one. You could also follow along. version, the Bible app on your iPod, your iPhone, your iPad, your Google device. All of our liturgy, all of our scripture goes right through that. So if you hit the live event and you search Sacred City Church, we are right there. Okay, so if you remember from last week, Moses introduces this dude to us named Noah, right? Moses kind of showed us 1,600 years of history in one chapter. He flew through it, and he goes from Adam to this guy named Noah. Now, Noah had a decent dad. Many of us in this room did not. Some of us did. Uh, And we don't get to judge what a decent dad is. We saw last week that Cain's side, nobody from Cain's side served Jesus, but all the dads in Cain's side were really passionate about sports, and their kids went to hell. Rough. Rough. All of Cain's side, all the dads were cultural creators, building cities, making music, uh, learning the arts, doing phenomenal work in the city, and none of them shepherded their kids to love Jesus. Eternal hell. Terrible. But then on Seth's side, Seth's side, they did a little bit of both. 
set aside. They made culture. They made the arts. They did things. But the chief thing was they walked with God. We saw that with Enoch. And Noah, by God's grace, had one of the fathers that were on Seth's side. He had a dad who prayed and prophesied over him as a child. Noah's dad said this, This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. At birth, Noah's dad held him up and said, God's got a plan for this child. What I want you to see here is that God had a plan for Noah from before birth. God had a special job for him to do, and therefore God had already chosen him to have a special relationship with God before Noah even had the choice to follow him. God had elected Noah to walk with him and obey him. God had decided to give Noah grace, even though Noah... Here's the kicker. Even though Noah was no different from anyone else on the planet. Okay, that's what I got to, that's what I'm hoping you see this morning. That's what I got to show you. All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 5. We talked about this a little bit last week. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was... Come on. What's it say? I'm going to make sure you're reading it with me. Don't just trust me. Don't just trust me. You better be reading it in the book. All right? This is why we go to churches and we just shake our head at the pastor and we don't even know what he's reading. Right? Let's get in the book. Let's read it. What does the Bible say? Verse 5, was only evil continually. All right? That, what is God's observation? What is God's judgment on his observation of man? He says this, they are all wicked. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looked at man through God's perfect holy eyes and he saw that they were totally depraved. They were utterly wicked. They were all, every single one of them, dead in sin, right? We talked about that last week. Dead on the table. Including, does it say anything about except Noah? God looked and he said, they're all jacked up. Except for my shining star, Noah. Absolutely not. Listen. This is a key because we're going to see some things later on. Noah walks with God. Uh, Noah's deemed righteous. Noah's deemed blameless. And many of us, we get this backwards. We look down at the story and we read and we say, Oh my goodness, everybody else was evil and everybody else was uh, dissing God and walking away and wanting their own way. But Noah, Noah was completely holy. Everybody else is getting plastered and Noah's praying. Noah's got this inner sense of goodness where everybody else is evil. Noah's got this shining star of goodness in his heart. And then we read this story to our kids and we say, Now, Johnny, you need to be like Noah. Don't be one of these wicked sinners like everybody else on the planet. Be a good guy like Noah. Right? And the movies teach us this, right? The bad guys wear the black hats and the good guys wear the white hats. And we want our kids to wear the white hats. Right? That's not scripture. That's not the story that's being told today. Everyone wears black hats. So what happens? Verse 8. 
But Noah, we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that word for favor is actually the Hebrew word for grace. Okay? That is the Hebrew word for grace. The Oxford English Dictionary defines this Hebrew word as this. I love it. God's unfair preferential treatment. God's unfair preferential treatment. That's grace. Now, Noah deserves the same as everyone else on the planet. Noah deserves death. Noah deserves to swim for it. Noah deserves judgment. Noah deserves hell. Noah deserves the same as every other sinner on the planet. But because he's absolutely the same, he's no better. His heart is just as wicked as every single other person. But here's the difference. Noah gets grace. Noah deserves the same as everybody else, but Noah gets grace. Now, that's not fair. Hey, that's not fair. Yep, that's right. That's grace. Grace. Unfair, preferential treatment from God. So Paul tells us a few thousand years later in his letter to the church in Ephesus, this is what he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. So Paul, kind of a couple thousand years later, is really giving us some hints to how to interpret this text uh, of Noah. We're saved by grace, and so was Noah. Noah here was chosen and saved by sheer grace. So many people have grown up in the church and we've grown up to believe that the Old Testament is just outdated. Forget about it because God wasn't gracious back then. God was the big meanie in the sky back then. But now, because Jesus came, Jesus shows what God's really like and God kind of did a psych a few thousand years later and said, no, I was kind of a jerk, but now I'm really soft and gentle. Right? That is absolutely not true. You're going to see in this story of Noah... God is incredibly gracious from the get-go. God only, he had one plan from all eternity, and that was to show humanity grace because he gets the glory. We're going to see that. So Paul's telling us how to interpret this text. We're saved by grace, and Noah's here was chosen and saved by sheer grace. But here's the question. But then, what does grace do Once it's been placed upon a person's soul, how does grace affect a person? What does grace do? Once a person receives grace and God puts that grace on someone, what does grace do to a person? This is where so many people, you know, they they say, oh, God's grace is all about him. It's not about me. Sweet. I can go do whatever I want to do. No, that's not grace at all. The verse we quoted from Paul in Ephesians, here's the next verse. For by grace you've been saved by faith, not of your works, so no man can boast. Here's the next verse. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's saying you've been given grace. God's poured his grace upon you. He formed you with his own hands. He made you. You're his workman. Now here, go do some works that have been prepared beforehand. So he's empowered you. Go do these works. Grace, when it comes upon a person, produces good works. So Paul is telling us that grace, once it has been set upon a person, it will begin to work inside that person to produce good works. That's how grace works. And we see that 
in the life of Noah. And I want you to get this today because grace, it's grace that saves us. It's grace that empowers us. It's grace that justifies us. It's grace that sanctifies us. Not because we're good enough or ever, ever, ever deserve it. But only because God decides to show his unfair preferential treatment on us. He is gracious towards us. So we're about to see here God's special favor and grace upon Noah begins to produce some really good behavior. God's grace, now listen, God's grace makes him righteous. And I know I'm trying to set us up well here because number one, you guys are kind of like asleep this morning. But number two, because you're not wired this way. You are wired for legalism. You are wired for moralism. You are wired to believe that God loves you because you're cute. God loves you because you're good enough. God loves you because somehow he looks down and he looks at every, he looks at your neighbor. That's what you believe. Let's just get there. He looks at your neighbor and he goes, oh man. And he looks at you and go, yep, he's my guy. We're wired to believe we're better than other people. You know, you got the list. You know, you got the list in your head. You know, you, you got that guy, you know, he, he makes more money than you, but his kids are just crazy, right? So, so he knocks down the list. Right? And then you got that other guy, well, well, you know, his kids are, you know, but he's just a tyrant, man. His kids are, you know, he's just mean to his kids. And, and I, I'm just, lo- you know, I'm, I'm a lot more nice. I'm nicer than that guy. We get this list in our head where we're constantly competing and we've got a standard of righteousness. And as long as we're good enough to meet our own standard, we think God looks down and says, oh, he's a pretty decent guy. I like that guy. I want to get that guy on my team. Right? So, we're wired to believe God looks at us based on upon our works. God is happy with, with us when we're doing well. God is ticked off when we're not doing well. Um, God loves us because we're good enough. And, and, and it's going to be really hard for us to see this text in the way that Moses intended it to, to, to write it to us. And God intends to show it to us. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray right now and ask for the Holy Spirit to do that. Father, um, I thank you for your word that it's from you. It's divinely inspired that your spirit is laced all through this scripture. Um, Father, and I recognize today that we have a legalistic and moralistic bent to our soul that we don't want to believe in grace. We want you to treat us fair. We want you to do good things to good people and bad things to bad people. Um, We, Father, we are legalists at heart. And I ask that you would expose that in our heart today that you would give us faith, that you would give us grace, that you would bring repentance. And Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you this morning and very little or none of me, that you would anoint the ears of the people to hear your word and you would give their heart the faith to believe, Father, that this could be a life-changing day, that your word sets the captive free. Your word breaks uh, addictions, it breaks bondages, it breaks legalism. Uh, your word heals in men's relationships. May we submit ourselves under it and may you change us for your good, for your glory, and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just in case you didn't believe me, I want you to look at verse 13. Verse 13 here, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. 
Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay? Now, all right, let's go back to verse 9 real quick. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I want you to understand this. Noah's works did not make him righteous. Noah was deemed righteous by grace, and that made him work. Because God gave him grace, Noah walked with God. Do you hear this? God is not in heaven looking down and saying, Oh, there's a righteous one. I'll choose that guy. God looks down and says, Oh, they're all jacked up. I'll choose that guy. That grace then works itself out and makes Noah righteous. Do you see the difference? Okay, here we go. So in verse 13, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That would include Noah. So why was Noah included? Why was Noah called righteous and blameless? I'm just going to, I'm going to make you do this today. Why was Noah deemed righteous and blameless? Ah, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Theologians. I love it. Come on, sacred city. That's what I need because he received grace and he accepted that grace by faith. That's it. That's it. That's why he was righteous. This is going, the Holy Spirit is going to have to rewire our brains. I'm going to tell you that. He's going to have to rewire our brains this morning. Our righteousness does not attract grace. God's grace brings righteousness. Our righteousness does not attract God like a sweet-smelling savor. And God's like, oh, He's phenomenally righteous. I'm going to come down and walk with him. Isaiah tells us our righteousness is like filthy rags. And I don't really want to tell you what that filthy rags really means. Okay. It's disgusting in God's presence. But instead, God looks down, sees everybody's jacked up. They're all sinners. They've all went their own way. They all give their finger to God and he chooses one and he places his grace upon that person. And then once that grace has been placed upon that person, that grace produces righteousness. That grace brings God near and God walks with that person. And as God walks near with that person, God begins to develop righteousness in that person. Oh my goodness. It's a whole lot better than you think it is. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we're saved. That's how we're sanctified. By grace, sanctified means we're this process of being made into the image of Christ. Did you know that's the point? If you went to church and you thought the point was going to heaven someday, that's not the point. That's pathetic. That's terrible. It gives us no purpose to live on this earth. The point is to be made into the image of Christ. While we're on this earth, we're being made into that image and we're being sent out on a mission and we're being called to live inside community to show people what God is really like, how gracious he is, how loving he is. So God makes us more patient. God makes us more kind. God makes us more loving. God makes us more like his son. And then when we get to heaven, then we get the full glory and we get to, ma- get to be made into the image of his son. That's where we're headed. And the process starts now. And it's joyful. Martin Luther was fond of saying, we're saved through faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. We're saved through faith alone, 
but not by faith that remains alone. That was his way of saying that real faith and the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ produces good works, produces righteousness, produces Christ-likeness. So God pronounces Noah righteous and blameless even though his heart was still wicked. And as Noah was walking with this gracious God, God speaks to him. God speaks to those who walk with him. God loves to speak to those whom he has poured his grace upon. Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, this brings up a really good question that many of us struggle with. Just how does God speak to us? How does God speak to us? Listen, the number one way that God speaks to his people is through the scriptures, through the Bible. It's definitely the only way that we can be guaranteed that we're hearing from God. It's also the measuring rod. Listen, the scripture is the measuring rod for every other voice and every other opinion you hear. All the advice that you hear, all the stuff you hear on TV, what your friends say, the the voice that speaks to your head, your conscience, Scripture is the measuring rod for that. If you tell me, listen to this, and I've had people do this, literally. If you tell me that God is leading you to leave your wife and kids, I will call you a liar. That's not God. I don't care what you say. It's not God. It's contrary to scripture. It's against his nature. It's against who he is. That's either Satan or your own sinful desires. That is not God. God leads us according to righteousness. God leads us according to holiness. That's God. So every voice that we hear, when you're making a decision in your life, the first thing that you should think of is, what does scripture say about it? This is the first way that God speaks to his children. That's why it's so important to daily be pouring over the scriptures and be chewing them up and being asking God, what do you have for me today? And, and what are you trying to do in my heart today? And what are, you wanting to me to, what are you wanting to show me about you in the scriptures today? Now, God also speaks to our mind. He speaks to our heart, however you want to say it. He, he gives us impressions. Maybe you're at the grocery store and, and you see somebody like a neighbor or something and, and, you, and, and, and you kind of feel like maybe I should, I think I should go up and talk to that person and, and, and maybe invite him to church or invite him to a missional community or just go say hi to him. And, and, and you, you get this impression. God speaks in those ways too. But we can never fully trust those impressions because they're wrong sometimes, right? You've all been young. You've all, you've all felt the impression that, you know, it's, it's hilarious. It's usually the dating thing, right? Like, I, I just know this one's the one. I know it. I'll never be complete without this one, right? And six weeks later, she breaks your heart. And, oh, my God, right? <clears throat> so, anytime we get an impression or thought that we believe could be from God, it's important for us to weigh that word against scripture. Does God's word say anything about it? Listen, listen, this is another opportunity for those of you who are in missional communities. The majority of our church actually, um, 
we have more people involved in missional communities that show up on, on Sunday morning. So we are a gospel-centered missional church. That means we care more about and we put more time and thought and preparation and prayer into what goes on six days a week than we do what happens on Sunday morning. We love this. We, we love the preaching of God's word. We love coming together under the liturgy and repenting of our sins and taking part in the, of communion in the Lord's Supper. We love doing it, but we're sent out as a community on mission to show the world what God is like. So we live our life in the community week in and week out. And, and your missional community, one of the things that God, why God is place them in your life is so you don't act the fool. So when you have a big decision, maybe it's a job or maybe it's, you know, you're about to buy a house and you don't really know, can I, you know, you're young, can we afford it? Can we not afford it? You know, before you make a big life decision, God says there's wisdom found in many counselors. So God places a missional community in your life. So you guys, hey guys, what are your thoughts on this? What is the spirit telling you about this? How, what do you think about this decision we're about to make? And that right there is contrary to our American society. It's contrary to the sense of I'm my own man or I'm my own woman and who are they to tell me what to do? And that is a foolish attitude. That usually happens right before people really screw up their life, right? So God has given us a grace to surround us with community so we can say, all right, is this God telling me this? So missional community, if someone looks at you and says, you know what? I really feel like God's leading me away from my spouse. What are you going to say? <laughs> Liar, you're not. No, that's not God. All right? That's not God. Right? That is not God. Absolutely not. That is the sin that's in your heart, like that's in every single person's heart. This part of our nature, this original sin that desires to define ourselves outside of God's will. That's what that is. All right. So back to the text. So God chooses Noah by sheer grace. He pours his one-way love on him. He regenerates his heart. He gives him faith to believe. He changes him. He walks with him. He speaks to him, and he makes him righteous. Now, who's doing all the work here? God. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory from this? God. Now, listen. I want you to see the, why the gospel is the key to everything in Scripture. If you grew up in church, you probably read this story and Noah was the point. Noah was the hero. Noah gets the credit. Noah gets, wow, Noah, what a guy. Everybody else, the wheels are falling off and they're pagans and, you know, they're sleeping around and they're getting hammered and they're doing all, but Noah, Noah was the guy. Noah was the one that went to Sunday school and paid attention in the lesson, right? Noah was the one who memorized the Bible verse. Noah won the Bible quiz. Noah's the guy you want on your team. And we say, oh, now isn't that exciting? Go be like Noah or you're going to drown. We send our kids out. Just go be like Noah or be a really good swimmer. You got two choices. Noah's not the point, And that is... The, if, that, if that's the way it's taught, that is, you don't even get the Bible. Sunday school teachers who teach that don't even understand the Bible. The point is the gospel. God gets the glory for the righteousness of Noah. God gets the glory for the godliness of Noah. God gets the glory for the blamelessness of Noah. Because God gave him grace, came down, walked beside him, held him close and said, let's do it like this, boy. Let's do it like this. This is how we're going to do it. 
God gets the glory for all of Noah's obedience. This week I was reading in one of my daily devotionals, and this is what it said. I love it. Righteousness is doing right in God's eyes. Righteousness is doing right in God's eyes, and God alone is the author of righteousness. For any activity of yours or mine to produce righteousness, God himself must be the source of it. For any activity in our life to be deemed righteous, God himself has to be the source of it. Not you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and I'm going to do it this time. This time I'm going to be good enough. This time I'm going to pray long enough. I'm going to read my Bible well enough. I'm going to share my faith good enough. I'm going to go to church enough. This time I'm going to be righteous. Absolutely not. In order for you to be righteous, God has to be the source of all your good work, of all your work, period. So why does Noah find favor in God's eyes? By sheer grace. But what does that grace, what does God's grace do to Noah? It causes him to be righteous and walk by his faith. Do we see that? So he receives grace and that grace causes him to walk in a righteous way. And God speaks to Noah and this is what he says. Do we see that? Did I effectually, did I, did I build out that enough that we saw Noah before he was born, God had already said, this is the guy. It's prophesied over, this is the guy. So therefore, if it happened before he was born, he hadn't done anything good or bad to be deemed righteous for, right? So God chooses him. God puts his grace upon him. God says of all mankind, they're all wicked. They're all sinners. They all deserve judgment in hell, but I'm going to give this one guy grace. He gives this one guy grace, and as Noah receives that grace and understands that grace and is walking near to God, God produces good behavior. God produces a righteousness in his life. Do we see that? Okay. You're not going to believe it. That's fine. I know. I know. We're all little self-righteous legalists. That's fine. God, God only likes the good guys, right? God kills the black hats, and he likes the white hats, right? The problem is there's only one guy that wears the white hat. Jesus Christ is the only guy that got the white hat. We all were issued black hats at birth. We can't switch them out. Well, yes, we can. Through Christ, that's it. All right, we're going to get there. Here we go. So God speaks to Noah, and this is what he says. Noah, build a floating zoo. Make the first ever zoo boat in the middle of the desert. And God says very specifically, I love this. He gives him the exact dimensions. We've got him up there, you know, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high, 300 cubi- or cubits long. And this is what that measurement uh, equates to. I want you to know, God says this to Noah. I want you to build a boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. For the engineers in here, that's 1.4 million cubit feet. Or... That's big enough to hold 522 modern-day railroad cars. 522 modern railroad cars. Okay? Many scholars believe that this took Noah the better part of 120 years to build. Think about that. You're in the desert. 
You've probably never seen a boat and God tells you, go build a battleship. You can't get that off Amazon, right? Even if you're a Prime member, just, it, they don't deliver out there. So, right, you couldn't go to Lowe's. Uh, yeah, I want the floating zoo package. Just go ahead and drop that off in front of the house. Uh, Noah had to go find, listen to this, Noah had to go find trees. He's in the desert. Noah's got to go find trees. He's got to cut them down. He's got to mill the lumber. He's got to mine the iron and melt the iron down to create nails or fasteners. He's got to go find the tar and the pitch to waterproof the whole thing. That's going to take a lot of pitch to waterproof a battleship by hand with a four-man crew, him and his sons. Can you imagine this? Six days a week, Noah and his boys wake up, strap on the tool belts, and get to work. I find it interesting here that you never learn. We don't even, doesn't even mention Noah's wife's name. Can you imagine, ladies? Some of you have kind of experienced some of this. Your husband and your son's building a battleship in your front yard, right? This woman seriously had to have some grace. She had to have, come on, Noah, my petunias? Really? This is worse than the car up on blocks in the front yard, right? Parts strewn all over the yard. He's building a battleship. So they do this for 120 years. Now listen, I I bet Noah's house, I bet Noah's house was like a local and tourist hotspot. Have you guys, have you guys heard about this guy who's building this huge battleship in his front yard? Have you guys heard about this guy? You got to go check him out. He's hilarious. Old crazy man Noah. Come on, let's let's go. Get on the camels. Let's go look at, we got to go look at old crazy man Noah building a huge boat in his front yard. That, that was what Noah got for obeying God. 120 years. That's how Noah was looked at by the world for walking close to God. Oh, crazy man, Noah. Noah and his sons got a little cult thing going on over there. Family-driven religion, some little cult thing going on, building some huge monument, building some huge boat out in the middle of his front yard. Oh, crazy man, Noah. Noah ain't coming out with us no more. Noah don't want to go party with us anymore. Noah didn't want to screw around. Noah didn't want to waste. Noah, six days a week, Noah is building an ark. That's going to cost some cash. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah built the ark in reverent fear of God. He was in awe of God's graciousness in his own life. Noah looked around and goes, holy crap, I'm no different than that guy, that guy, that guy, or that guy. But God showed up to me. God gave me grace. God walks near to me. God told me what he's about to do. God has given me a plan. I'm no different than anybody else on this planet, but God has shown me grace. So God, so Noah walked in reverential awe of God. He was in fear of God. He had this, just this divine sense of, wow, I've been given grace. God chose me. God walks with me. God speaks to me. And God is going to save me and my family. I choose to be crazy. I care more about God's thoughts towards me than I do the opinion of my neighbors, my coworkers, and my friends. 
Second Peter 2.5 says that Noah was also a herald of righteousness. That means he was a preacher of the gospel. So Noah worked six days on the boat and he spent his seventh day worshiping God, had a little church in his house, preaching the gospel. Noah was bivocational. He was building a boat and preaching the gospel. I bet that huge boat in his front yard really helped people with directions. Right? They're at the store. Hey, you want to come to my church? Where's it at? You know, you know the big boat? The huge Yeah, that's, that's where we're at, right there. Right behind, right behind the boat. There's this little house right behind the boat. Just show up right there. We're, that's where we meet. Right? But this, this is what's freaky. This is where things get really ugly. Noah preaches for 120 years and sees zero converts. Ouch. We've been preaching for about a year and we've had the privilege to baptize 20 people into the family of God and we've got more that are ready to be baptized and wanting to be baptized. Can you even imagine preaching the gospel, the word of God, which is powerful, it's active, it produces stuff, it moves people, it causes repentance, it, it, it changes people. He's preaching hard for 120 years and psh, zilch. I can't. His kids are sitting in the front row. Anybody new? Nope. All right. Open up your Bible. Let's do this. Can you imagine? Listen. One of the things that grace does as it enters our heart is it fills us with a power to endure. It gives us a new level of perseverance. When you're walking close to God and you realize that the reason you're close to God isn't because you're better, isn't because you performed well, isn't because you got God's attention with all your amazing works and accolades, but the only reason God is near to you is because he chose to be near to you. What that nearness does is it produces, it's not a force field. It doesn't keep pain at bay. It doesn't keep sickness at bay. It doesn't keep suffering at bay. But what it does is it creates a buffer where this nearness is the point. This nearness is the sweet spot. This nearness is the goal. This nearness produces joy where the pain and the ridicule and the endurance that I have to go to doesn't kill me. It doesn't crush me. His nearness is what sustains us in obedience in difficult times. See, there is no real success away from him. We think there is. We think, God, you just stay over there and while I make some money and I build a family and I act a fool and I break commandments and I do things that I think are going to bring me joy. There's no success there. There's no success. It's like the guy who, who, who uh, he's a workaholic for his family, but then he kills his family by being a workaholic. Wife leaves him. Kids hate him. It's never home. I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it for my family. And, the fa- and you lose the family in the process. I 
one of the things that God has built this earth to do. He built, and this is something that you will not, you don't want to believe. I don't want to believe it. I hate it. I'll be honest. I hate it, but I found it true. I found it true in scripture. I found it true in my own life. One of the things that God built suffering and difficulty, one of the things he made them do is it's meant to help us experience God's nearness. Suffering, pain, turmoil, difficulty, relational fractures, relational, relational problems. One of the things they're meant to do is press us near, push us near to God. Remind us that the nearness of God is the point. That this relation, this physical relationship might be shattered, but I find my identity in Christ in his nearness. That my body may be broken and my body may be crying out for redemption, but my identity is found near to God. Nearness is the point. In the trials of life, only the grace of God can keep us going. This is what's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you when the trials come, and this is why I want to prepare. Some of you are suffering today. Some of you aren't suffering, but I'll just let you know it's coming. And some of you, some of us, we want to come to services and we just want to hear, oh, it's just going to be roses and tulips and rainbows from the rest of your life. We want to be told that. And then when the crap hits the fan, we got two options. What are you doing? Or what did I do? I must not be obeying perfectly. Yeah, you're not ever. But the the suffering and the difficulty isn't proof that God is far away and far removed. It's a, it's proof that he's drawing you near. He's drawing you closer. Success can't sustain you. Success can't make you happy. The perfect family is never perfect. You can't find your identity in your kids or in your spouse or in your money or in your job or in your accomplishments or in your ego. It's found in Christ. Only his nearness can sustain us. But suffering, see, suffering reveals our heart's desires and our motives. Listen, I know that I'm a fickle man. I'm fickle. I'm weak. There's no... I, I look in this and I say, I'm not Noah. I know I can't do this. 120 years, zero converts. Deuces. I'm going back to something else. Uh-uh. Because I know, what am I doing wrong, God? Did I say the wrong words? Did I, did I not use correct mannerisms? Was I not dressed, you know, culturally acceptable? What's going on here? Was it the huge boat in my front yard? Is that awkward? I'm going to be beating myself up constantly. All right, well, I preached to my son again, and my son still didn't get saved, God. Right? <laughs> my daughter, she rededicated her life again. She was felt and feeling guilty for dad. He gave another altar call. Nobody moved forward. So I guess I'll get saved again. <laughs> Mom's going, it's your turn. It's your week. It's your week. So what does that reveal? There's a part of my heart. I'm going to be honest. There's a part of my heart that is preaching for results. 
There's a part of my heart that is obeying God and leading a church and and trying to move this thing forward so that we get results, so that I see fruit, so that I know, okay, I'm not wasting my life. God is actually at work here. So am I working out of my desire for significance or am I working out of my experience of his nearness? Listen, this is, this is heart work. My wife came to me this week and said, one of the, one of the things the Holy Spirit's been showing me in my prayer life is that my prayers need to change. So many times when I'm praying for my kids, my prayers are really just about me. God, help them obey. God, help her take a nap today. Right? God, change her into the cleanest two-year-old ever. That's all I ask. That's all I Is that too much to ask? God, listen, I know this whole thing about original sin and we're all born in sin. Could you just skip that one with mine? Make my daughter angelic, right? Our prayer, how many times are we really praying, God, break my child's heart over their sin? Grieve them that they that they have offended you, that they've walked away from you, that they desire athletic accolades, that they desire the, the popularity of their friends, they desire the praise of man more than they desire the uh, the holy God of all creation. How often do we pray prayers like that, or do we pray, oh, just help them help out around the house and not kill their sister, and just come on, can they just clean up? Only grace enables radical faith-filled obedience even in the midst of suffering. Only grace can give you the power. Only grace can give you the motivation, can actually make it happen. Grace enables radical faith-filled obedience even in the midst of suffering. The only thing that kept Noah going 120 years, preaching the gospel, building a boat. Can you imagine? I would be, and I used to work construction. You're building a boat and clouds come rolling in. I can just imagine what's Noah thinking. Oh, man. Right? Like, we're not done. It's coming. Here it's coming. Oh, false alarm. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. I got another week. Got another day. Here we go. 120 years. What are you going to do today? Build a boat. What about tomorrow? Nah, build a boat. 120 years. Faith filled obedience, keeping his nose down. Only grace can do that. Only an experience of the absolute ridiculous grace of God can keep someone motivated for that long. You want to know why people get excited and they walk away? Well, their hearts are fickle. That's just natural. They forget about grace. They forget the gospel. What attracted them to the Christian faith? Oh, I get forgiven. Now it's old news. They don't need to be, they're forgiven once and for all, right? So now I just got to work on my own and got to get close to Jesus. Absolutely not. Grace continues to do it. 6.18. God says this to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. 
All right? Now, this right here is a game changer. Okay? This is the first time that the word covenant is used, and covenant is one of the dominant themes of the entire Bible. I would say you can't understand the Bible unless you understand covenant. We're going to talk a whole lot more about it when we get to Abraham. Today we're just going to do a rough flyover, all right? So today I'm just going to say this. A covenant is God's decision to create a special, unfair relationship with certain people. God's decision to create a special, unfair relationship with certain people. And today that person is Noah. That is the, this right here is a covenant of grace. But one thing that I want you to see is that the first thing that God said to Noah, the first thing, God tells him to build an ark. God tells him, I'm going to make a covenant with you. But what was the first thing that God said to Noah? What was the first thing? How did God start the conversation off? I want you to look at this. The first thing that he says, I, roughly, I'm excuse my words, I've decided to kill them all. God looks down. They're all wicked. They all do what they want. Nobody wants me. I'm going to kill them all. That is the judgment of God. So many people are like, what is this grace stuff? God is treating some people unfair. I hear so many people argue from fairness. God couldn't send people to hell. That's, that's not fair. If God was only fair, he would send everyone to hell. Every person has willfully, their original sin has gave birth to actual sin and we've willfully rebelled against him and we all deserve death and hell. But God, because he's unfair in a way, he's gracious, he gives grace to some. And God, look at this, God made Noah aware of his coming judgment And that made his covenant of grace that much sweeter. See, God's grace shines brightly against the backdrop of his judgment. This is one of the reasons. Now, this is, we don't say this. I don't say this too often. You don't hear this very often. But this is one of the reasons why it is so important for us to understand and know God as a holy and righteous judge. Now, just bear with me for a moment. I believe the core... The core of the gospel is salvation through judgment. The core of the gospel is salvation through judgment. You're going to see this literally everywhere in scripture. And if you're not critically, listen to this, I don't even know how to say this right. If you're not effectually aware, if you're not, you know, cognitively aware of the judgment, the coming judgment of God, you will be neutral to the gospel. Do you hear that? You will be neutral to the gospel. Parents, we don't raise our kids like they're good little kids that just need some rules to obey. Why? You are inoculating them to the gospel. They better know that they're desperately wicked. They better know that they have an inability to obey you and to obey God, that God is not happy with their heart, you know, partial obedience. 
There is a judgment coming against all sin. Well, won't that cause my kid to despair? For a moment. Until you say, and that is exactly why you need the grace of God. You're not good enough. You can't obey. Daddy fails every day. Daddy doesn't obey perfectly. I'm a sinner just like you. And the only way that I can be deemed righteous is through the grace of the Almighty God. If you don't really believe that God is a totally righteous and totally holy judge, you won't really think you need to be saved from anything. I don't need to be saved. I need a little bit of help. But I don't need saved. Moses right here. He's brilliant. He's giving us a historical account of a picture of God's grace in the midst of his divine judgment. The flood is God's judgment on a sinful world. Every person deserves to drown. You've rebelled against your creator. Swim for it. Let's see what your human effort can get you. You want to live apart from God? Swim for it. I can doggy paddle all night long. Good luck with that. This is a picture of what our human effort, this is a picture of what our human effort is like in the eyes of God. The flood is God's judgment on a sinful world and there was only one way. There was only one way to be saved and that was through the grace of God, inside a covenant relationship with God, in the ark. You had two options. God's grace or swim for it. Do you hear that this morning? The gospel is not, you're either going to be a good person or a bad person. The gospel is you're all bad. Every one of us, wicked. Here's our two options. The grace of God. Swim for it. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, that's what he's going to ask us. Did you rest in the gospel? Did you rest in the grace of God? Or did you swim for it? I don't care. You could be Michael Phelps. You're not a good enough swimmer. You're not going to, you can't save yourself. The same is true for us today. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to walk near. And that is through God's son, Jesus Christ. What I want you to see this morning, now we're going to spend three weeks in Noah, three weeks on this story. What I want, listen, if I sent you out of here, like I know you've probably, if you've been in a church before and you've ever heard it preached or you've been in Sunday school, here's the lesson. Come on, guys. Wear a white hat. Come on, guys. Be like Noah. Noah, Noah's a stud. Go be like Noah. Noah. 
Come on, ladies. Be like Noah. The problem is they divorce the scripture from what happens in a few chapters where Noah is buck naked and drunk in front of his, his daughters. Right? So do you, <laughs> I would love like a well-educated, well-Bible-read kid to go, really, Dad? You want me to go be like Noah? Give me the bottle. I'm going to strip right now. Be like Noah, huh? Well, not like that Noah, but like the, the you know, chapter 6 Noah. That's what I want. Listen, that's not, I wouldn't be a gospel preacher if that's what I did. I believe you can preach the Bible and not preach the gospel. If you've tasted religion and you found it wanting, it's dry bread in your mouth and it never satisfied, that's not the gospel. The gospel satisfies our soul. I could bring you in and, woo, Noah's the man. Everybody go out and be like Noah. And that's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's a, maybe that's good news to an American. Yeah, I'm going to go up. I'm going to be like Noah. Noah was an entrepreneur. Noah could see things other people couldn't see. Noah was, give me a break. Noah was a broke sinner. The grace of God gave him everything he did. Listen, Noah couldn't be Noah. Noah couldn't be Noah without the grace of God. From this point in the story on, every person that will ever be born on the earth, including us, is a recipient of the grace of God given to Noah. Because in a moment, next week we're going to talk about it, God wipes off everybody but Noah's family. Everybody but crazy boy Noah. I can just imagine, we're going to see it next week, I can just imagine the last board gets nailed. Noah's like, oh, honey, bring me up. Starts to rain. Doesn't even get a day to enjoy it, right? Doesn't know what, what's happening right now. And I imagine, just like on the day of judgment, just like on the day of our death, it's one of those divine, oh, crap moments. The guy's down at the bar. Did you see Noah? I think it's been 120 years now. All of a sudden, the skies break open. Rain starts falling. And all of a sudden, old crazy boy Noah. The only people that were saved were saved through one man's obedience. Does that sound familiar? Noah was pointing us to the true and better Noah. That's Jesus Christ. The story's not about Noah. The story's about Jesus. Let me show you why Jesus is so much better than Noah as I close here. Noah was a sinner and had to receive righteousness from outside of himself. He had to have God make him righteous, deem him righteous. But Jesus was totally and completely righteous, never sinning once. See, church, Jesus is the true and better Noah whose obedience saves his family from God's coming judgment. Does Noah's obedience save the world? 
saves his family. Does Jesus' obedience save everybody? No. Saves his family. Saves the church. Jesus is also the true and better ark that carries us safely through the wrath of God. Jesus is the boat we hide in from the storm of God's wrath. Jesus is the boat that delivers us through the wrath of God, through the judgment of God, and delivers us safely to a new heavens and new earth. There's one door to the ark. There's one way into heaven. There's one way to walk with God, and that's through the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the true and better Noah. Jesus is the true and better ark. Because Noah experienced God's grace in the midst of God's judgment against sin, he was radically empowered to persevere and to endure the suffering of 120 years of hard labor and no converts. Because grace captured him. The grace of God. A radical experience of God's grace empowers us to radically obey Jesus. We say this, the only way to make disciples, that's what we do here. We want to make disciples. The only way to make disciples is in community and on mission because the gospel gets worked out in community and on mission. As grace captures our heart, It empowers us to live closely with other people and we see their sin and we consistently offer them grace. And they see our sin and they have to offer us grace. Right? We need grace. Grace empowers life in community. It's the only way to sustain life in community. Grace is the only way to keep us on mission. Grace is the only thing that can motivate us properly for mission. We can't be motivated by guilt or condemnation or fear of judgment. We have to be motivated by grace. God came and saved us, and now I get to go and be a missionary for him. The gospel motivates us in community and on mission. If you're here this morning and you've never, maybe you've never heard this, Maybe you thought coming to church and coming to to Jesus and being a Christian was just putting on a white hat. Becoming a good guy. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there was one good guy, and that's Jesus Christ. And everybody else on the planet deserves God's wrath and judgment against sin. But by his grace, you're here this morning. You're hearing the gospel. And he give you the gift of faith and you respond and you say, Father, I know I'm not a good guy. And I need Jesus Christ. I need his righteousness. And I want to walk near to God. Jesus, thank you for being better than Noah. Thank you for saving us through your obedience and your suffering. 
Jesus, thank you for being better than the ark and that you carry us safely over the waters of God's wrath and you bring us safely to God's new heaven and new earth. Father, someday, someday you'll come back. Someday we'll meet you. Someday you will judge everyone either based on their work or based upon your grace. Father, I pray that that that's, that weight, that weight would be in our soul, not a weight that, that crushes. But this is reality. A flood is coming. Sin is rising. Wickedness is rising. And there's a flood of your judgment coming. Could be now. It could be a thousand years from now. But let us live like Noah, who walks in the grace of God, is obedient in the face of suffering because of the work of God in his life and on his behalf. I pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we would turn for our self-righteousness. We would turn from our wickedness. We would turn from our sin. We would embrace you by faith. And Father, the promise of the new creation, the promise of when you said, I'm going to wipe out all the earth, but I'm going to start over, that there's new creation coming, that the new heavens and the new earth that will be ours by faith and by grace, that that new creation would work itself backwards in us through the sacraments this morning. We would taste new creation on our tongue. We'd be inspired by how you're recreating the world and you're going to make everything right again and all the wickedness will be punished and will be purged and will be gone. And we'll get to sing and dance and work and love and laugh and be joyous in your presence forevermore. Thank you for your grace given to us in Jesus Christ. You are a good, almighty, gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen.